Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. We are continuing in our series on the armor of God. Let's see, turn this thing on. And we come to a chapter that talks about feet. <laughs> feet, those actually... I, I, the one toe shoes are mine and the other is Karen Bratz. And because uh, I like toe shoes, even though people look at you really funny and I also like toe socks. It's, it's a, and when you backpack with toe socks, you have less blisters because there's no rubbing between your toes. Just a little foot information for you. Uh, you know, toes and feet are important. We wear a lot of shoes. We do, you know, all kinds of stuff. I, I remember... Uh, Years ago, when I was young, we went on vacation, and all of a sudden, we discovered that my brother didn't have shoes. So we had to stop and buy him shoes. He jumped in the van, driving to Connecticut with no shoes. You know, that happens. My wife said that she had many times where she was on vacation, and she lost a shoe more than once, just one. And they had to buy her a few pairs, and her family was very happy about that. So uh, feet are interesting, and we come to a passage that talks about feet, I'll start up ahead here. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the day, evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand firm. Sorry, stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. And I put a picture up there of kind of a, a remake of what the potential or the shoes looked like that the soldiers wore. And they had kind of these nails in the bottom to give you traction, and it was thicker leather. And uh, that's the picture of the soldiers. And sometimes we think, oh, Paul was thinking about their shoes. But I don't think so. Because this is the passage in the Old Testament that talks about feet. And notice how he said... The gospel of peace, and here in Isaiah 52, 7, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news, announcing peace and bring good news of, and a lot of times they translate it happiness, but literally it's good, good news of good. They're like, well, we can't say that. Let's say happiness. Who, uh, who announce salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. Your God reigns. So really, I want to kind of talk through this passage here, because I think Paul had this in mind when he was talking about feet and the good news. And it begins with good news. And literally, that's what gospel means, good news. And sometimes we have to ask ourselves, what is, what is the gospel, right? What is the simple gospel message? And you could say, well, Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, right? died for your sins and rose again, and those who believe in him will live forever. That is the gospel. But, but it's interesting because the gospel, good news just means good news. Good, it's, it's, it's an announcement of something. It, it, the gospel is proclaimed as truth. It, it's like this. If you were in a walled city, anybody ever been to a walled city, like in another country or whatever? My uh, brother-in-law used to live in a little walled city, yeah, in Germany. And, uh, you know, cities have walls. And basically, in other countries, they, they build 
walls around your house. You know, I've been to houses and you're like, oh, there's glass on top of that wall that's around your house. Yep. And they just put glass in because they don't want people to climb over. And, and, and so imagine being in a walled city and having this army marching against it. And your knees are knocking. They're going to take siege. They're going to, you know, decimate you. And, and they're a strong army. And all of a sudden, a rider comes in and says, we've made peace. We've made peace. How would you feel? And would you have done anything? No, you, you would have just received the announcement and had good news. Years ago, I was on a cruise ship. I think we were celebrating my mom's, I think it was 15 or 10 years cancer-free. And uh, my brothers and I were on this cruise ship, and, and we were sitting down in a, a section and talking to uh, just strangers that are becoming friends, because that's how I am sometimes. And so I'm talking to this one lady, and it came up that I'm a pastor, and she started telling me like her life story and how she came to know the Lord and got involved in this church and like did everything in the church and just loved Jesus and brought her daughter with her and you know just this wonderful thing. But then she started talking about kind of her decline spiritually, and um, and she was uh, married, I believe, and her husband was an, was an atheist and uh, he had terminal cancer and this cruise was his last. Hurrah. You know, my brother was actually engaging with him and sharing the good news with him. And so as I'm talking to her and she's talking about where she is, I could see she was like, is there any hope for me? Like, God, I, I, I forsook him. And I remember saying to her, you know, Jesus lived this perfect life and he never forsook the father, but the father forsook him, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he who was perfect was forsaken by the Father. So you will never be forsaken. And she starts weeping. Just like right there on the cruise ship. And her heart was being touched by the good news that although we forsake God, he doesn't forsake us. And today is the day when you can believe and turn around. It was this beautiful, holy moment in the smoking section of a cruise ship. So... Uh, so there's an article, What's So Amazing About Grace, written in Christianity Today. And so many other religions, the, the gospel is not good news, it's good works. It's you have to do something to achieve. The gospel just comes to us, it's like peace has been announced to you, right? In other religions, things are different. And in this article, he talks about a British conference on comparative religions where experts from around the world were discussing whether one belief was unique to the Christian faith. And so they're examining, like, what's unique about Christianity? And they begin eliminating possibilities. Is the incarnation unique about Christianity? And they're like, no, some other religions have incarnations. The, the Caesars uh, thought that they were incarnate, right? They were gods on earth. And what about the resurrection? Nope, some other religions have resurrections. Um, and what about return from the dead? Nope, other religions have that. And then C.S. Lewis wanders into the room and says, what's the rumpus about? By the way, I bet you haven't used that word recently. <laughs> Years ago, I, older people know this, you would like be buying a house and you'd come and they'd, they'd be like, this is the rumpus room. Now the young people are like, what took place in there? What's a rumpus, right? I'm not sure. 
but uh, what's the rumpus about, he asked. He said, uh, as they were talking, they were discussing the unique uh, contribution uh, that Christianity brings to the world religion. And look, look at Lewis's response. He goes, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Grace. It's this announcement of the good news not based on what we've done, right? Is it that... That God so loved the world that he gave. It's like we've all won the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes. It's good news, right? You got curlers in your hair, your bathrobe. Like, you won. Now, the truth is, though, we have to cash the check, right? For, for all who believe in him. Like, we have to embrace this good news. That's how you cash the check. You believe, but it isn't a work. Because when I tell you the good news... God creates faith in the hearts of people. And then you use the faith that he gives you as the gift that comes from the good news, and you believe and you receive, and, and it's this beautiful gift of the gospel. Now, these, these shoes that we wear are really shoes of evangelism. And I think when I say evangelism, a lot of funny things come to people's mind, right? Sometimes you think, oh, it's like the, the used car salesman or whatever. You know, it's somebody trying to sell you something to convince you of something that you don't really want or don't really need. And a lot of times, you know, we get a funny feeling. And, and we can feel guilty sometimes that we don't do it enough. I was riding my bike with Gretchen this past week, and I came across uh, some Jehovah Witnesses. You know, they don't go door to door as much. They just set up somewhere with like a booth and a little thing. And, and, and we stopped by the Jehovah Witnesses. And I'm like, oh, you should engage them in argument. I mean, in conversation. And... Um, and I'm like, oh, I don't know that I want to do that right now, you know. And I didn't engage them. And then I'm riding away going, that might have been the one opportunity that they had to hear the gospel. And you, Doug, blew it because you should have argued with them, right? And, um, yeah, and then, you know, I think a lot of, lot of us feel that way. Like, we don't do it enough or we don't, you know. And, and we, we have kind of a general sense of guilt when we hear this word evangelism, and yet, I think the first person to be evangelized, for you to be an evangelist, is you. Did you ever get like a new cell phone and go, look at my new cell phone, right? Or maybe uh, you have a baby, or, or maybe you get engaged. When people get engaged, what do they do? Social media in your face, Right? You know what I'm talking about? Because you, you can't stop talking about the things you love and that you're excited about. It's just natural. right? What, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I remember I used to sing this song when I was in college in our like, college campus Christian group. And it said, I get so excited, Lord, every time I realize I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. Jesus, Lord, you've done it all. You paid the price. I'm forgiven. I'm forgiven. Hallelujah, Lord, my heart just fills with praise. My feet start dancing, my hands rise up, and my lips, they praise your name. But you know, in the church, we're like, yeah, I'm forgiven. Jesus died for my sins. Anything else? Right? You know what I'm saying? Like, like if, this, if this truly expressed my heart or your heart, I think we would just, we would gush the gospel. It would just come out of us. So I believe the first person to believe the good news is you and me. When we evangelize ourselves, the gospel comes out. So one of the books I've been reading in preparation for this series is a recent book 
uh, written just, I think, about two years ago called Perfectly Suited. And this pastor uh, quotes somebody here and then interacts with this quote. He says, the quote goes like this, it is a great thing to realize that the forgiving grace of God is the deepest, mightiest, most permanent and persistent power in the moral world. You're like, what? That the grace is, look, how, look at those, those words. And he, he goes on and says, I beg you to realize it, to arrest yourself, to compel yourself to stand long enough in the hurry of interests, the press of pursuits, the buzz of things, to take the fact and its meaning in. You know, it's like Paul says, Christ's love compels or constrains me. So, he, so the author said, well, inspired by these words, like how can I pause and take this in? He goes, I conducted a very simple personal exercise. First, I wrote down the negative words I regularly associate with myself, characteristics I felt were unright about me. Words such as these came to my mind easily. Now, I know none of you will be able to relate to this, but just humor me. Confused, broken, afraid, guilty, wounded, frozen, ashamed, small, weak. Do you guys have things that come to your mind sometimes, those inner voices that critique you, right? You, you know, you, yeah, and he said, and I, I then crossed out the other word and put down God's truth about me. He said, instead of being confused, God makes me guided. And instead of being broken, God has made me whole. And instead of being afraid, I now am loved. And instead of guilty, I'm forgiven. And wounded, no, I'm healed. And frozen, no, I'm freed. And ashamed, no, I'm confident, and small, no, I'm protected, and weak, I'm strengthened. Isn't that beautiful? And he said, then something curious happened. A voice in my head began to dismiss the second list. Isn't that funny? How like you get good words about you, and then all of a sudden in your head, you're like, as much as I knew these were solid biblical truths, the harsh inner critic took over and presented me with all kinds of reasons why the new words didn't apply to me or why they were true, but with caveats, like, oh, yes, but. Or this was a stupid self-centered exercise to make me feel better, right? Isn't this interesting? Like, do you get that sometimes? You know, somebody will give you a compliment, you know, and you'll go, liar, Right? Or you just don't let it sink into your heart. Your heart's like rubber. Now, they criticize you, oh, you believe that. Or you fight it, right? Or, or, you know, oh, I can't believe they would do that. It's the same kind of thing. Or you just take it in, right? Because it's just agreeing with everything you know about yourself, all those bad uh, adjectives. And, and then he goes on and he says, you know, as, as I am much more comfortable holding fast to the negative list and not turning, not repenting to consider the new list. So for him, repentance is this. I'm not going to believe these negative things. I'm going to start believing the positive things. To consider the new list, it's far easier to stay fixated on my 
perceived flaws even when I know full well that God sees me differently. Now, I know you can't relate to this, but this guy experienced this. He said, the underlying assumption I had brought into was that God looked on my self-judgment as admirable. Never mind the fact that he says he has hurled my transgressions into the sea or that he chose to stop remembering my wrongdoings. Somehow I have it in my head that he is pleased when I refuse to forgive and accept my shortcomings. Isn't that interesting? He, you know, I think he says it here. Okay. So he, he, he would say, somehow when I look at myself and I'm harsh on myself, God's like, good, because I don't like that either. And I'm happy that you're harsh on yourself. Do you see that? Maybe you're that way too. It's like you, you're on God's side. He doesn't like sin. You don't like sin. So stay being harsh on yourself instead of believing that you're guided and you're whole and you're loved and you're forgiven and you're healed and you're freed. How much more would the gospel come out of your mouth if you embraced all those words? How much more confident and filled with love would you go out into the world when you're saying, yes, I may feel small, but I'm protected. I may know I'm weak, but I'm strengthened. I may be ashamed, but no, I am confident. I'm forgiven. Like, as you believe these words, then, then evangelism is just who you are because you found wholeness and love. And God, do, you, do you see the difference, but you also see the, the struggle? He said, uh, as I have experienced the gospel power in the midst of my battle with anxieties. What I like about the book is he struggles with OCD and, and an anxious mind, and he applies the uh, armor to his struggle. And he says, if I, as I've experienced the gospel in the midst of my struggle with anxiety, it's given me far more freedom to share my faith. It's become a firsthand report of the good news. I've known personally. I'm no longer trying to convince someone or win an argument about doctrine or explain salvation perfectly. I'm simply telling my own story of grace. It's easier to talk about your favorite shoes when they've really become your favorite. Like, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what life has brought your way. But God brings us through stuff, and we rediscover him, and we find him in these moments of anxiety and stress and difficulty and depression and persecution and, like, whatever it is. Like, we rediscover the good news of the grace of God, and the gospel then, in the midst of whatever we're going through, becomes real and, and personal, and God will use that beautiful gospel that you're realizing in the midst of your situations to bring it out to the world in a way that only you can do it. So how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. And we bring the good news to the world and to ourselves, announcing peace and brings good news of happiness, uh, who announce salvation and say to Zion, your God reigns. Why would they have to say our God reigns? Isn't that interesting? Our God reigns. Well, back in the day, they had all these other competing gods, right? You had Baal or Baal, however you want to say it, and, 
And people would give their children, right? Sacrifice their children to have a good crop, right? There were deities that were worshipped with sex and prostitution and all this stuff. And, you know, I say these words, and everybody now, we have kind of a, a mindset about it. But back in the day, if you weren't part of the Jewish faith, this was normal. They didn't frown on temple prostitution. That's how you got good crops, right? That's how and, and there were all these other deities. And you say in Zion, our God is above all those idols, our God reigns, right? Our God reigns. And the truth is, is that there are idols even to this day. Uh, many of you know I have followed Tim Keller, listened to hundreds of his sermons, read his books, and been blessed by his ministry. And he went to hospice and died this week at age 72. And he's with the Lord. I can only imagine Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into your rest. And so I wanted to actually go over a little bit of uh, stuff that I've learned from Tim Keller that has blessed me through the years. And you may have heard it before, but think of it as a tribute. But it also is something that sets us free. And it's a way of telling the world about Jesus that I think uh, everybody can relate to. And so it has to do with the idols. Now, we may not have Baal and other things in our heart, but we still worship something. One author said this, he said, even though we don't worship those ancient gods, we still attribute power to bless and to curse to all manner of things in the world. We say to beauty, you are my God. Or to success, I worship you. We attribute to money the ability to declare us a valuable person. Or to a broken relationship, the power to unmask us as failures. You didn't thrive. We say to our idols, so long as I have you, I have meaning and significance in my life. And if I lose you, I lose everything. Like we take good things and make them God things. That's what an idol is. Things in your life that God gives you that are good, and all of a sudden, they get raised to a point of, this is what defines me. This is what gives me significance. I, I say Jesus is Lord, but I'm really looking at this thing to define me, and it sneaks into our hearts. Tim Keller turned me on to David Foster Wallace's commencement speech. Years ago, David Foster Wallace, he was an author. Uh, he took his own life, actually, gave a a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And he's an atheist. And if you listen to his speech, it's worth a listen, but it's also given by somebody who doesn't believe in God. But what's so fascinating is look what he says. He says everybody worships something because here's something else that's weird and true in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life. There's actually no such thing as atheism. <laughs> Isn't it funny? He goes, there's no such thing as not worshiping because everybody worships. You're like, what is this guy going to say? And he goes, if you worship money and things, if that's where you tap real meaning in life, you will never have enough and never feel you have enough, right? And you know this, if you've ever tapped into money or defined yourself by money, 
When you spend it, you're fearful, right? When you use it, like, like all of a sudden money starts owning you. Worship your body and beauty and social media, right? Sexual allure. And you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths or spend a lot of money on plastic surgery before they finally grieve you, right? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, our culture is a body-worshipping culture, right? And we worship exercise, right? We worship, I mean, like this is, and it's a, exercise is a good thing. But when it starts being the thing that we say, you define me, all of a sudden it becomes just like Baal, just like Molech, the gods of the Old Testament. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over, uh, over others to numb you to, to your own fears. Now, sure, physical power may be one thing, but we know that there's political power, there's power in the business world, there's power in family. Like, like power is something that we can, can worship because we don't feel in control and so we want to have power to control. Worship your intellect and being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. And the insidious thing about these forms of worship is they're unconscious. They, they're the default setting, the kind of worship that you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being aware that's what you're doing. You know, years ago, my personal story, you know, I was young and I was, wanted to be a hippie, right? Sex and drugs and rock and roll. And I achieved that at a very young age. And then, then later in high school, I thought, you know, that really wasn't it. I'll be athletic, right? I'll be a jock because that's where it's at. And I achieved that too, and I was successful as a hippie and successful as an athlete. And, uh, and then I heard the gospel. And Jesus just radically changed my whole life. And I would like to say that's the end of the story. But what happened is, you know, I went to college and I became like, like a leader in the Christian fellowship. And you know what? We went from like this small group of like 10 or 15 to around a group of 80 which was 10% of the campus back in the day. So it was successful as a Christian fellowship person. And then when I was in sales, it, you know, I, I, I started a sales office. I started in Columbus, and I opened a sales office for the company, and it was all up and to the right. And then I went into ministry, and I started a worship service at another church and was on staff there, and it was, it was successful. And then I came over to Community of Hope, and we had about 39 people, and it was successful, and the uh, church grew to a couple hundred, and then it plateaued, and I was clinically depressed. Why? Well, Jesus is Lord, but you know, my performance is how I really evaluated my... my that's what I worshiped. And you don't know that something's a God until it's gone. Now, I'm attention deficit. My poor wife, right? She'll ask me something. I'll come back in the room. Were you going to do that thing I asked? Oh, right. I'll get you that. You know, she lives with it. And the, you guys do too. Sorry. And, and at that time, I thought, you know what I need? Attention deficit medicine. You know, I'm like in my 40s, 
and I'm going to get attention deficit medicine. So, you know, my doctor's like, yeah, get evaluated, come back. He goes, yep, you, you, you're attention deficit. I'm not giving you medicine. What? But, but, I, but, you know, internally, but I, who am I if I'm not performing well and this drug will help me perform better? And my doctor was smart enough not to worship that God. Doug, you're doing fine. Like, you're done, like, you don't need it. You don't need it. It was the best thing he could have done. You know, so many doctors would uh, do things differently. But what was I really saying? Well, I'm depressed, and I just need to run a little faster, work a little harder, and sacrifice to this God a little bit more. And, and it, was, it was in this time that Tim Keller ministered to me. I remember reading this article, which many of you would not want to read, The Puritan Resources for Biblical Counseling by Tim Keller. Isn't that a great title? Right? But you know what Tim Keller said about the stuff that he wrote about in this article? He said, John Owen counseled me in a highly effective way in a period of my life when no one else could. And this article and this whole understanding about having idols and when you lose an idol and wish you were dead, when you lose an idol and you're, you're depressed, because that's what happens. When you build your life around something and it's an idol, and it gets removed, you wish you were dead because the thing that has defined you has been pulled away from your life. I mean, two guys dating two gals, and I've said this before, they both, like, get broken up with, and one guy's like, man, that hurts, but there's a lot of other fish in the sea, and the other guy is ready to jump off a building. Why? Because that one worshipped that girl. Did you see? And th this is how idols work. And in this Puritan resource for biblical counseling, I was counseled by John Owens through Tim Keller in this time of depression that really helped me through it. And I think this message is a message for our world today. Because people live for what, what they love. People live for girls, people live for careers, people live for, you know, success in, in so many different ways. Social media popularity, right? What was an influencer back in the day when you didn't have social media, right? Like, people live for that. And, and what happens when that thing that defines you gets sucked out of your life, what do you do? See, the good news about Jesus is when you live for him, he fulfills you. And when you fail him, he forgives you. See, Christianity is buoyancy to a world that's always trying to worship other gods. Maybe not the gods of the Old Testament, but all these other gods. If money is your God and you lose it, who are you? But if Jesus is your God and you lose money, you're like, it hurts but I'm still somebody to you, Lord Jesus. Do you see that? And how do you do it? Well, a practical way of working this in your life is when you have something that makes you feel good, you go, Lord, thank you for that thing that makes me feel good. But I'm going to cut the fat off that emotion and remind myself that you love me and you forgive me and you've chosen me. And I'm going to set my heart on what you've done for me and get my strokes from that more than this success, more than this thing in life. And then when you fail, you go, oop, that feels bad. That's, that's not good. But I'm not going to feel so bad because I'm going to cut the fat off that emotion. And I'm going to say, Lord, I failed. 
but I'm forgiven and I'm loved by you and I'm not going to feel super bad because of it because I'm somebody to you. I mean, do you see that, how the, the gospel centers us and we center our hearts in him and he gives us buoyancy? So four questions to help you identify some of the idols that might be in your life. Are you willing to compromise your belief for something? It's probably an idol. Are you willing, will you get angry if you can't do it or don't get it? Do you value it over people? Does it push you closer to God or pull you farther away? And you could see how so many things in life, all of a sudden we start sacrificing for those things that we worship. So the gospel of peace will come out of us as we play whack-a-mole with our idols have Jesus be the number one in our hearts. But let me encourage you to do something because I'm here, I believe, because people prayed for me. You know, I was on a, a prayer list years ago by teachers at, at Lutheran West. My mom prayed for me desperately and so did my dad. And I wonder if there are friends or family members in your life that God wants you to pray for. You want to go, Lord, could you please draw this person closer to you or that person? If you don't have a list, could you start a list? Because God may give you opportunities to share the good news, but before you talk to them, you've already talked to God about them. And then you can talk to them about God. Do you see that? So start praying, right? Make a list. Put it on the bathroom mirror. Put it somewhere that you look regularly and start interceding and praying for your friends, so you can put on the shoes, the gospel shoes of peace. Pray with me. Lord, there's a lot here. And I thank you that we're here because of your good news and your peace and that you have made peace with us. And I pray, Lord, that each of us could be re-evangelized in our hearts and in our minds, that we could know your great love just as the apostle Paul prayed that that the people would know the height and the breadth and the depths of your love for them and that we would know that, Lord, because that you could truly re-evangelize all of us and then you'd just be someone we talk about, like a, a new engagement. Lord, may you fill our hearts with you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.